Alright, and welcome to the show. This upload is coming to you January 25th, 2017, and you're listening to the Post Money Plan Podcast, where we demystify the complexities of finance and economics. So today's episode, we're going to be discussing inflation and covering some of the basics there. Last time in part one, we discussed what inflation is, the impacts of inflation, and causes of inflation. Today in part two, we're going to discuss how inflation is measured, inflation as compared to reality and people's experiences, and then what you should personally do about inflation. Today's episode is hosted by myself, Dallas Post, founder of the Post Money Plan, as well as Murray Williams and Reed Ianson. Welcome to the show, guys. Good to be here. Reed, if you could just introduce yourself. Masters in economics, and I'm working as a healthcare economist here in Houston. And Murray? Yeah, my name is Murray Williams, and I'm an emerging fund manager. I'm a former stock and bond broker, and also an, an economist and a mathematician. All right. So you could argue that it's, it's not directly related to inflation, but I would say that even though monetary policy tries to stabilize the business cycle of ebb and flow and boom and bust through steady inflation and other monetary measures, the fractional reserve system emphasizes a boom-bust cycle. Oh, you have to have recessions, just like you want to see expansions. If you allow economy to rapidly grow too quickly over time, it will overheat. It has been shown over time that Fed policy is actually much more effective at prompting recessions than they are at providing liquidity to get out of a recession or to, to grow an economy. Yeah, but playing devil's advocate here, I, I was kind of going back in the history of the recessions, and we, we actually had recessions and boom and bust cycles even before the Federal Reserve was created. And we had something called the Banking Panic of 1907, which was an economic slowdown and a depression. But I firmly believe that it is a leverage of the banking sector that causes our boom and bust cycles. And if, if we didn't have fractional reserve banking, the economy would be really stable as far as we wouldn't really have these massive contractions as long as massive overheating. But then again, you may not have a lot of credit either because banks are making a lot of loans and, and there wouldn't be a lot of lending going on. So, No, no, you're... This is something that an economy has to make a decision on, and mostly this will happen at the policy level. You will have growth and contraction in an economy no matter what. But you can define how big you want growth and contractions to be, right, based on how much you allow leverage to occur within your economy, how much the Fed wants to allow to go on within the economy, right? So you can have very consistent, slow growth over time, or you can have the U.S. system, which typically allows moderate fluctuations, or you can be an emerging economy that does very little and allows huge fluctuations in current GDP versus potential GDP. And remember, potential GDP is your long-run average growth over time. The United States has decided, hey, we want moderate expansions and moderate recessions. If you're Europe, they've gone more the route of, we want smaller expansions and smaller contractions. Now, this is obviously somewhat disregarding the financial crisis, which has a whole bevy of other issues that kind of go beyond this podcast. But from a very base idea, you kind of have to define from a policy standpoint what you want to allow in terms of short-run GDP fluctuations. Yeah, I think China is actually worse than the United States. I think China is actually going through super expansions, and they're going to have a super contraction as a result of that. All right, so... Let's bring it back to how inflation is measured. Reed, can you handle that for us? 
Yeah, inflation is measured literally by observing prices. And so in pretty simple terms, you have a basket of goods that a typical consumer will use within the United States. And the Bureau of Labor Statistics will collect data on price of this basket of goods by taking surveys every month and then tracking these price changes over time. This basket of goods will change over time as consumer preferences change. So items like food are really easy to track because you just got to go in the store and literally observe the same good over time changing price. But it might be more difficult to examine how other goods are changing over time because their inputs might have changed or production might have stopped. My point is it can be difficult based on the goods that you're tracking, or it can be easier based on the goods that you're tracking. At the end of the day, you're looking at a basket of goods that cost X amount, and you're observing how these prices for this basket change over time. And eventually they boil that into an index number. So they take all those goods, they put it in a basket, they take the cost of that, and they convert that into their index price, and it spits out a number, and now we're at 243 or whatever. And exactly. It's just known as your consumer price index, or CPI. Or you also have a producer price index, if you want to look from a producer's perspective. But from the Fed and from most market participants, you're looking at what are consumers doing and how are these prices changing uh, through the use of the CPI. So, you know, if you're just a normal guy, you can go and look at government data and see how CPI has changed over time. And that's how you'll calculate inflation. Yeah. So just to reiterate that, when you hear people talk about inflation, what is being referred to is changes in the CPI over time on a yearly rate. So if the CPI went from 100 in 2016 to 102 in 2017, inflation would be 2% over the last year. They kind of split CPI, yeah, like the core CPI, which is basically the, the consumer price index when you exclude food and energy prices, because those two items are very volatile as far as their price goes. So you have the, the core CPI, then you have the regular CPI. Yeah, exactly. The Fed will typically look at CPI and it oftentimes will exclude food and energy, especially when it's more volatile to try and get a clearer picture. But yeah, you got it dead on. Yeah, that's it. And it's also focusing on urban consumers, so rural consumers can have a different experience. But anyway, just to elaborate on the basket, the way they classify the traditional CPI measures, they put them into major baskets of goods. So they have food and drinks, housing, clothing, transportation, medical care, recreation, education and communication, and then other miscellaneous goods and services. They have this basket of like 200 plus items and a bunch of those in all these different categories that I just mentioned. They measure the price of those. Then next year, they measure the price of those again and so on and so on. And they, like Reed said, sometimes they take items out if people stop using them or something else becomes popular to try to get a feel over time of what it would cost someone to be a consumer in the economy. So the index that they created, the CPI, in terms of the actual number they went back and they indexed this number to 100, averaging the years of 1982 to 1984. So essentially, 1983 was the baseline index for 100 on CPI index. And today we're at 242, 243 or something towards the end of 2016, and we'll see where it goes from here. So what that means at 242 versus 100 in 1983 
is that prices are 142% higher in this basket, according to this basket, than they were in 1983. Okay, so then let's move on to inflation versus reality. Murray, how would you describe gauging inflation versus gauging reality or the real economy or what people experience? I think a lot of it has to do with the reality is is what people are getting paid and what people have to buy. And it's convenient to exclude food and energy prices, but unfortunately, food and energy prices is probably one of the top things people purchase. And so when the Fed tries to exclude food and energy prices from the CPI, that's probably not reality. But I mean, the reality of inflation is it's here with us and it's going to increase steadily. I believe that the creation of the Federal Reserve has basically doomed the U.S. dollar to infinite inflation. It'll it'll keep devaluing from here on out. Well, yes, but I mean, you want to see you want to see consistent inflation through time, right? Because if you don't, it won't keep up with economic growth over time, and that's a problem. Because if we were using the same number of dollars that we were in. 1980, and yet we have all these extra goods. You want to see the rate of money growth grow with your economy over time, right? That's considered healthy. You're right. I mean, yes, it's a problem when the Fed says, hey, we're going to exclude food and energy. But you got to remember, the Fed is more concerned with what is my long-run rate of inflation. So, look, I'm not going to change policy because I see a one-time fluctuation in energy prices. That's just not a smart thing to do, right? And there's nothing you can really do about that. I mean, you kind of have to let that work through an economy, right? It's a problem, yes, but is it a problem that the Fed can really deal with? Not really, not very well. Is it reality? Yes. And when we talk about inflation versus reality, inflation, I would say, is reality. And that is, if you are not taking actions to hedge against inflation, that is, you have a lot of cash and there is inflation in your economy, you should have investments that are at least returning you an amount equal to the level of inflation within an economy. And also, you need to be paying attention to what your wages are doing. If your wages are not rising at the rate of inflation, you should be questioning why that is so. And I think from a consumer's perspective, those are the two big takeaways is that Focus on what are your wages doing versus inflation, and two, what should you be doing with your free cash flow to protect or hedge yourself against inflation within an economy? So then bringing it back to individuals' experiences, so the CPI, unfortunately, can't reflect everybody's experience everywhere all at the same time because that's just not practically possible. And like we said, the standard CPI measure is actually gauging American urban consumers' consumption experience. So people in rural areas are going to experience different things, or people in Guam who use dollars may experience different things. It's not going to be the same experience for everyone everywhere. Yeah, that's right. I think that mild inflation, about 2 or 3%, is not necessarily a bad thing, especially for, for homeowners, as I brought up before. And you see people, they see their wages slowly increasing and, and they're paying the same in their mortgage payments. But I mean, the, the consequence of that is consumer prices go up over time as well. So that, that's just the give and take of that. As long as it's constant, it's not a problem, right? Because as a producer who's paying wages, if I know that inflation was 2% last year and it's going to be 2% the next year, 
I'm going to raise wages at least 2%, right? And so consumers are equally as well off as they were before. It's when inflation is increasing at a rate that is unknown. That's where inflation is a problem. It's not when it's consistent and constant over time, right? And that's what the Fed is trying to do is hold that inflation rate over the long run consistent and constant. Because if your wages are keeping up, you're fine, right? Because if prices go up 2% next year, but then I'm also making 2% more in wages, okay, fine. I'm okay because I can buy the same amount of goods as I could just as a counter argument there, unfortunately, there is a school of thought that the only reason monetary policy is effective is because prices are sticky in the economy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. Good argument. Yeah. But okay. So back to like the individual's experience. Inflation is also not going to necessarily match reality if you spend a lot of money in a certain area. So if healthcare goes up a ton and you spend a ton of money on healthcare and not on other things and the cost of everything else in the economy goes down, so then CPI goes down and so they would say, oh, we're experiencing deflation. But you spending a ton of money on medical expenses, which have gone up, would say, well, <laughs> the prices have gone up for me. And so that would not match your experience. And inflation is basically negative for individuals whose pay is staying fixed and prices keep going up. I think of seniors who are on fixed incomes, and I've heard reports that they're probably going to try to slow down the growth of Social Security as it relates to the CPI index. And that could be pretty bad for seniors because they live on the existing on this fixed income, and yet prices keep going up. If if the Fed keeps up their quantitative easing, or not, not just seniors, but people who have just you know fixed salaries, and which is if they're like locked into a long-term contract, whatever wage that they agree to, yeah, they they could they could feel some pain there. Yep. And then if you want to get really obscure and get into conspiracy theories, there's those people who would think that the government has incentive to underreport inflation to maintain the appearance of control of an economy. So that's something to keep in the back of your mind as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Let's just get to our conclusion of what people should do about inflation. In my opinion, I think people need to invest savings in stocks and other assets that appreciate along with inflation. And so savers, people who just sit on cash, are the ones that are going to be hurt the most. And ironically, borrowers are aided by higher inflation, like Murray said about real estate and that, those kind of things. So I don't want to advocate for taking on too much debt, but debt holders are benefited by inflation. But the easiest way to go about it is by investing your savings and not sitting on too much cash for long periods of time. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. I totally agree with that. And at the same time, I don't think that investors should put all of their money, 100% of it, in stocks and real estate. They need to be smart because, you know, as we explained, inflation rates and the value of the currency contracts and expands. And so if you have a period of lowering inflation as well as an economic contraction, then the, the purchasing power of your dollar will go up. And so your, your dollar-denominated assets will increase as well in periods like that. So, yeah, just, just keep your portfolio balanced. I will defer to Murray on those issues. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> okay, so that pretty much wraps things up. Thank you for joining us, and we'll catch you next time on another episode of the Post Money Plan Podcast. 